Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Christ Church Medicine, a community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMedicine.com. This morning, I want us to meditate on one story, three lessons, and two challenges. Sorry, that's not an order. One, two, three. One, three, two. One story with three lessons and two challenges. Here's the story. Once upon a time, a long time ago, in a kingdom far, far away, there was a king. Um, he was a pretty bad king, actually. He wasn't a very good guy, but he was the king nonetheless. And one day, his kind of main local rival king and kingdom decided to team up with a nasty, bigger, badder kingdom further away to form an alliance to come and wipe him out to besiege the city that he lived in. And as this, the king saw this alliance of armies coming towards his palace with a forest of spears, he was filled with fear. His heart melted like wax. His knees knocked together. His hands shook. He lost sleep at night. The finest wine of the palace lost its taste. It didn't matter to him anymore. He knew that the alliance of kingdoms that was coming against them, he stood no chance, and he panicked like a tree shaking in the wind. And in his panic, he did the only thing he could think of, which was to turn to a big, bad bully king, a different one, um, to come and protect him, basically. He didn't like this king, but because he was so afraid, he gave the bully king all of his money, he told him he would do whatever he asked as long as he came and protected him against these armies who were besieging his city. And it was in that situation, when the king was terrified, when he was panicking and running around and giving all the money of the treasury to this bully, that God sent a prophet to confront him right in the middle of this. And the prophet said this to the king, O oh, king, listen, God has a message for you. Be still. Be quiet. Be not afraid. Let not your heart shake like a tree in the wind because of these besieging armies. Do not put your trust in a bully king, but let your heart be firm in me, God said. Let your faith be firm that I am with you and that these nations will not overtake you. And then through the prophet, God said this to the king. And in order to strengthen your faith, I want you to ask for a sign that I might prove that all this is true, that I am true. So think about it and ask. What can I do to demonstrate to you that I am with you? It can be anything. Think big. Be audacious. Use your imagination. And the king sat about it, and he thought, as the armies were around his city, and he thought, and he thought, and then eventually he said, no, I'm okay. It wouldn't be right for me to make you do something like that. Thanks, but no thanks. This made God sad. It grieved him that the king would leave his offer on the shelf. And with his heart melting and his knees knocking, turned towards a bully king. 
But God said this back to the king. Fine. Turn to the nasty bully king. But know this. I am still going to give you a sign anyway. For you and for anyone else who might stop and consider it. And the sign will be this. There will be a child born to a virgin whose life and whose name itself will bear witness to the fact that I am with my people. That's the story. And as my three and my five-year-old always ask me whenever we're watching anything, Dad, is this real? Is this a true story? This is a real story. It's Isaiah chapter 7. The king is Ahaz, king of Judah. The kingdom's teaming up. His rivals is Israel with Syria. The bully king is Assyria. You can read about it in 2 Kings chapter 16, Isaiah 7. You can also read about it in the book of Hosea in the Bible, is, is prophesied during this time. But I tell it to you as a story. It would make a great children's book, right? I kind of want somebody to like draw those pictures uh, and turn that into a kid's book. Because when you take away all the crazy names, you, it, it has a pretty powerful impact, doesn't it? It's relatable. There's so much in this story in Isaiah 7 for us to learn about ourselves and God. And in particular, I think there's three lessons that come right out of this that matter to you, that matter to me this morning. Three lessons. Here's the first lesson. God wants to strengthen our faith in him. God wants to strengthen our faith in him. The picture of God we get in this story, which is borne out by the rest of Scripture, by the way, is that he desires, he longs for our belief in him and for our experience of him to be deepened and broadened. He's always poised and ready to make that happen. Let's just consider the character of God in this story for a second. To begin... I didn't really go into it in my story time, but Ahaz is a bad dude. He is not a good guy. Ahaz is in the hall of fame of wicked kings in the Bible, and there's a lot to choose from, but he's like top five, okay? Bad guy. Um, he sacrificed and burned some of his children on an altar to false gods. He literally reworked Israel's worship system that God told Israel to do himself, like from his own ideas. Bad news. So however sinful or unlovely you feel this week, whatever you've done that makes you feel like God might not be interested in strengthening your faith or meeting you this morning, it's probably not Ahaz level, okay? And even if it was, God would still look at the, the character of God in this story, all right? Because consider this. Think about what's happening in this story. God comes to this guy who's not a good dude, not at his best moment, at his worst moments, when he's literally selling Israel to Assyria. God comes to him then and says, hey, Ahaz, I can see that in your sin you're miserable, anxious, consumed with fear. I'm not making up the language about shaking like a tree in the wind that comes from Isaiah 7, if you heard Luke read that. 
I can see you're not firm in your faith, and don't you love in verse nine, God says, and if you're not firm in your faith, you won't be firm at all. And then God gives him a chance to ask for something that would strengthen his faith. Ahaz, what can I do for you? Ahaz, it doesn't matter what it is. Ask me. Can you believe that? What does that teach us about the character of God? That God is that gracious to someone like Ahaz and gives him an opportunity like that. Unbelievable. Now, what about you? How would someone tell your life story right now? Once upon a time, in a town called Madison, in the upper Midwest of the United States of America, there was a man or a woman named fill-in-the-blank with yourself. And the thing that this person feared more than anything was fear is what God focuses on this story with Ahaz. Fear is what makes us shake like trees in the wind. What is the fear that bosses you around more than anything? We've all got them. Could be many things. The fear of failure. Fear of not being loved. Genuine fear of being hurt or abused. The fear of not being married. The fear of being stuck in a hard marriage. The fear of being invisible, left out. The fear of pointlessness, meaninglessness. That's a great question to take home with you. Most of us are controlled by fears that we're really not that aware of, I find. And once you figure that out, who's your bully king? When our hearts melt, we all turn to something, right? For control, for protection, for comfort, security. Who's getting all the gold in your life right now to try to medicate that fear? The first lesson from this story, and we cannot miss this, it's amazing, is that God sees your heart melting. God sees the bullies that you're vainly turning to for help, and he wants to come to you like he did to Ahaz, and he wants you to strengthen your faith. He wants to make it firm. The opposite of fear in this passage is the word firm. The opposite of all the shaking and the anxiety and the terror is when God says, if your faith is not firm, you won't be firm at all. God wants your heart to be firm, dauntless, steady. He wants to build in you this unshakable belief that God is there, that he sees you, that he loves you, and that he's bigger than your fear. The devil wants you the fear in your life, whatever it is, to loom larger and to be more real to you than the presence of God, where the fear is huge, but God is kind of small and speculative in your life against it. And God wants to flip that ratio. He wants his power and his reality to loom so large in your imagination that it dwarfs your fear by comparison which makes you the kind of person like David when he can stand before a giant and be like, y'all are afraid of this guy? And everybody else is like, you're not? God comes to you and says, be still, be quiet, be not afraid, I'm with you. And then he offers, what can I do to prove to you that I'm with you? That I'm bigger than your fears. I want to help 
grow your trust in me so that you cease being tossed around by the wind. The offer is on the table. It was yesterday, it is today, it will be tomorrow. God wants to strengthen our faith in him. That's our first lesson. Here's the second lesson. We are not always interested. We are not always interested. God wants to strengthen our faith, but we are not always interested. The problem in Isaiah 7 is not that God is distant or uninvolved or unaccommodating. The problem is that Ahaz rejects God's offer. (laughs) He lets it be. And this, to me, is the real inviting mystery of this passage. Led me to ask some deep questions this week, like, what in the world? Why wasn't Ahaz interested? This is like the greatest small group question of all time. Like, okay, everybody break up into groups and figure out why in the world Ahaz leaves this on the table. He rejects a divine offer for faith building. And then I asked, is this true of us? Do we do this? Are there times in my life where I leave God's offer of grace on the shelf? And even as I asked the question through this conviction of the Holy Spirit, I knew that was true. Ow. Once upon a time, there was a man named Scott who lived in Madison. God saw that he lived in fear like a tree blown in the wind, and God came to extend grace to him. God wanted him to be firm in his faith to help him, but Scott wasn't always interested. How can this be? Why would we ever reject God's offers of grace? Um, In Ahaz's case, it's really hard to say. The the text actually doesn't say, if you're looking at it. Um, All we get in verse 12 is that Ahaz says, no, I'm not going to ask for a sign. And his reason is very pious. He says, I will not put the Lord God to the test. But almost everybody agrees that this is false piety turned up to 11. Um, He's hiding behind this technicality in the Bible so that he doesn't have to deal with the actual person of God who's speaking to him. It's fascinating. He hides behind his theology in order to not deal with the God of the Bible. We see the Pharisees doing this, and don't think that you and I can't do this as well. But that still doesn't answer the deeper question of why did he not accept it? That's just what he hid behind. If I were going to take my best shot at it, uh, and this is me conjecturing, but I think it's, we can get it some from the implications of the passage. If I was going to take my best shot at it, my guess is he didn't really think God could help. His fear had grown so large, there was, there was little room for faith. His heart had grown so attached to kind of an earthly salvation of swords and spears and everything in the king of Assyria that Isaiah saying that God wanted to help him and give him a sign just sounded to him like spiritual mumbo-jumbo, if you will. Have you ever had anybody give you spiritual advice in a really tactile situation and it sounds a little bit glib? I wonder if that's what's going on here. I find it fascinating that when we are at our most unstable and our most unhealthy, everyone else can see it, but we often can't in that moment. And what happens is, is we come around someone where we're trying to help them. We know what they need and we're offering it to them and they don't want to receive it. 
We say back, no, I'm fine. I'm good. I don't need help on this. When it's like, yeah, you do. (laughs) I've been on both sides of that. I have been with people in my life that I want to help so bad, and we're all trying to figure out how can we offer help to this person so that they can see it and receive it. Um, And it's really hard. And I've also been on the other side of that when I can kind of tell everybody's staring at me and like, man, Scott's crazy, and we need to give him some help. And I'm like, I'm fine. My hunch is something like that is happening for Ahaz on a spiritual level. I can tell you for me, so in my prayers this week, I'm like, oh, Lord, okay, how do I do this? Why would I ever do that? Among the things that I realized keep me from asking and receiving God's personal grace is the fear that I'll be disappointed. I don't want to ask because I lack the faith to believe that God could actually do something or that he actually does care about me. That's true. Or like Ahaz, just a lack of faith that he'll demonstrate himself or that he's the real solution. Or that I'm so attached to other things in my life that I think I'm so fixated on the things that I want that I think will solve my problems that in my distraction, I don't even notice the offer is there. This is like Ahaz uh, pouring over his correspondence with the king of Assyria, you know, going from meeting to meeting in the palace or whatever. And Isaiah's in the hallway and is like, behold, you know, a prophecy from the Lord. And he's like, wait, what? Who are you? What are you talking about? Can we talk about this later? And then he just kind of goes into the next meeting. And it's like, oh, I should have listened to that. We're like trees in the wind. I relate to, to Ahaz's experience here, not because God is unwilling to strengthen our faith or to make us firm, but because more often than not, we aren't interested in having our faith strengthened. This is a lesson to be pondered personally. There are gold in these hills that I am just beginning to untap myself, but I believe those two lessons wholeheartedly. God is always interested. Can you imagine the character of God of the Bible? You've saying, God, build up my faith, cast out my fear with your love, and him being like, not right now, I'm, I'm busy. No. He's always interested. We often leave it on the shelf. But here's the third lesson. And this is just as crazy and as epic. God gives a sign anyway. God gives a sign anyway. For whatever reason, Ahaz rejected God's offer. We know that it grieved God. Verse 13 says it wearied him. But then God's character just shines out of this story again because he says, fine, I'm still going to do it. I'm still going to give you one. This is amazing. Even when we're distracted, unbelieving, God still moves towards us. He still leaves the offer there. It's amazing what this says about God's character, that even when we reject him, he still comes towards us and offers something to us. And what's the sign? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Scholars debate, uh, if you ever read about this, like, wow, this is where, now you guys know where this is coming from because we also read the gospel reading. We're like, oh my gosh, this is Mary and Jesus, right? But scholars debate about what this meant to King Ahaz. Um, As Isaiah goes on in this chapter, it seems to be like God is promising in his day there's going to be a child that's going to be born 
that before he grows up to kind of the age of accountability, this threat of these two armies will go away. And it's meant to be a prophecy and a sign that God is with them. This is also, by the way, our patron uh, passage for all Wisconsin people because it talks about eating curds. Did you catch that? All right. It says he's going to eat curds when he grows up. That's direct prophecy about Wisconsin somehow. Um, but it's hard to say. People, people try to figure out, okay, what, what's happening here for Isaiah? What is super clear and what Matthew helpfully just goes on and points out to us in the gospel is that the greatest fulfillment of this came when a young girl, a random young girl, conceived and bore a son named Jesus. And the angel came and it says, you're going to name this, this child Emmanuel also, which means God with us. So do you see what this means? This is where the riches of this just start to unravel. Christmas is a sign given to anxious trees shaking in the wind people like Ahaz who are caught in between bullies and fear and death and their own distraction and sin that God himself is with us. Amen? It's almost like on a historical scale, God gave his offer to the whole world. Ask, what can I do for you that would prove to you that I love you and that I'm with you? What can I do to help you quit longing after bully kings and false protections and turn to me? Ask for something. And it's almost like our sinfulness. And our sinfulness as a whole human race, we just left that offer on the shelf. No, no, thank you, God. Thanks, but no thanks. But God gave us a sign anyway. He still moved towards us. The incarnation, the baby in the manger, is the sign for the whole world. It's a sign that God was interested in us before we were interested in him. Wow. God is interested in me. God is interested in you even when you are disinterested in him, he still has given you a sign. That's good news. That means you can come to Christmas and have had a lousy 2020. Let's not just blame the pandemic. We have also messed up. Amen? Probably worse than the pandemic. We don't need grace just because 2020 was a hard year. We need grace. Y'all know what I mean? Thank you. One story, three lessons. Here's the two challenges that I think come out of these three lessons. Number one, behold the sign. Number two, ask for a sign. Number one, behold the sign. Number two, ask for a sign. First, behold the sign. This passage leads us to personally consider the incarnation as a sign to us. Christmas has a lesson for you. It's pointing to something. It means something. So as you sing carols, as you read Christmas books, as you do whatever you're going to do over the Christmas holiday season, dialogue with the Lord personally about this in prayer. Lord, what is it about the Christmas story, the incarnation, that you want to use for me in my life to strengthen my faith? I've had a spiritual uh, mentor in my life who's recently been encouraging me when I approach a doctrine of Scripture to think about it like a gift that God has given me personally 
and that it teaches me something about God. And so I unwrap it as I'm studying the scriptures or as I'm meditating on some doctrine of scripture about what it says about God. And we can do that with the incarnation for you personally. Lord, what do you, how do you want this to strengthen my faith personally? What is it about the fact that Jesus became a human and was born in a poor part of a suffering culture? That is for me. Not why is it significant theologically or why is it significant for other people, but for me. Oh, you can, you've entered into my experience. You know what this is like. You've faced all the same things. Oh my gosh, you came into all this. Maybe I can have hope for these reasons. What does this say to my fear, my specific fear? What an awesome prayer opportunity that is over the next few weeks. It's easy to be Ahaz, guys. You know this, right? It's, the offer is here. It's easy to be distracted and to go, I'm good. I don't, I don't, I don't want to ask anything. I mean, I don't want to make God have to do something like that. This is what's so awesome about the shepherds and the wise men, right? They're icons of people who oh, take God's offer when it comes to them, and they go and they, they behold the sign. So that's the first one. Approach the Christmas story like a sign given to somebody who's full of fear. Let it do something for you. But the second challenge is this. Ask for a sign. There is no doubt Jesus Christ is the capital S-I-N-G sign. He is the answer to Isaiah 7. But I do think we would be remiss if we read this passage and also didn't conclude that God relates to us individually and also wants to personally ask for, also wants us to personally ask God for, for him to deepen our faith in personal ways, intimate ways, just between you and the Lord. And we know this is true, not just because of Isaiah 7, but because this little baby boy who was born and ate curds, apparently, would one day grow up and would be preaching to a bunch of people, and you know what he would say? Ask! <laughs> Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. And when Jesus says, Remember, he's talking about the heart of, of the Father God. He's saying God is the kind of God who loves to give good gifts to his children. It's in his character to want to bless you and to bless those who ask for more of the Holy Spirit. Doesn't that remind you of the character of God in Isaiah 7? So this is overwhelmingly biblical. So what do you want for Christmas? My cheeky sermon title, What to Ask for Christmas. Here's what I think Isaiah 7 and what Jesus would commend us to ask for. First of all, they would commend us to ask, to be bold, take God up on his offer. God, would you strengthen my faith? Where I am anxious and shaky and fearful, where I'm living controlled by fear more than I am by the joy of the Lord, would you strengthen and firm up that part of me? Would you give me signs in my life that point to this truth, that you're with me, that you see me, that you're interested in me, that you legitimately care about me personally? In God's goodness, I think it's amazing. There's kind of a bifocal view in Isaiah 7 with what's happening in Isaiah's day and then what's happening in 
the full gospel with the, the fruit of Jesus being born of a virgin. And I think it's amazing that God works in this bifocal way with us. He gives us this objective historical sign in the incarnation. But then also through the Holy Spirit, he asks us to minister to us and ask us for him to be involved in our life in personal ways. And we behold one, we lay hold of it and we ask for another. And as I thought about this, the temptation for some of us is to hide behind the objective one so that we don't risk have to asking God to be involved in our personal life. So it's like, I've got Christmas, that's all I need. Incarnation is good. I don't need any other experience of God personally that I feel like he actually knows me. Some of you might struggle with that. For some of us, we become so infatuated with personal signs that we miss the big one, the historical one, Christmas. This story is is so rich. I think the gift of this for us this Christmas is to just put yourself in it. Where is God offering something to you? What would keep you from, from saying yes to that? And then take him up on it. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, would we have that experience of you that is real. Lord, we we believe that you are offering to us this very day through your word and table, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, through your community, coming up into the feast of Christmas, Lord, that you want to deepen and strengthen our relationship to you, our faith in you. Lord, I specifically pray for those who are especially controlled by fear right now. Lord, we pray for the miracle that we would all know in the places of our deepest fear that you are greater than our fear and that you actually want to replace that with your love. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.